You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. All right, how many of you have seen the modern-day classic Elf? Anyone? Okay, all right, a lot of you. So you'll understand this illustration. Now, to be clear, this is not on the same level as It's a Wonderful Life, all right? I mentioned that movie last week, and Buddy's cool and all, but he's no George Bailey, okay? So let's get that out of the way. But at the end of Elf, there's this scene where Santa's sleigh won't fly because not enough people believe in him. And apparently the magic of Santa's sleigh is dependent on the belief of others in this movie. And eventually the main characters kind of whip up the crowd and they start singing carols. And, and you probably know the story. This little magic gauge on Santa's sleigh kind of bursts up and he's able to fly. And, and the movie ends with a happy ending. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Sorry about that. That's really on you at this point. Um, but the reason I bring this scene up is because a lot of people... Honestly, especially in our culture, a lot of people view God's power like that. There's actually preachers that preach God's power is like that. That his power is in some way dependent on our faith. And, and people, people teach it. And what that does, what happens with that type of teaching, is someone really tries hard to believe that God will do something. Maybe it's heal someone, or maybe it's give them breakthrough in a situation, or maybe it's restore something that was broken. And, and they're begging God, and they're pleading with God, and they're believing with every ounce of belief that they can muster up. And then when God doesn't do that, they feel discouraged and broken, and they blame it on themselves because they didn't believe hard enough. And listen, the scriptures are very clear that faith is critical. That's how we persevere as Christians. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say that God is dependent on anyone or anything. And we need to know that so that when we look at this passage and know what it means that God is the mighty God, we understand that he is not dependent on us to believe him into being mighty for us. He is mighty. He is self-sustaining. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. The scripture says our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is the uncaused cause. He is the self-sufficient one. He is the almighty sovereign ruler of all things. Matthew Barrett puts it this way. God does not merely possess power or have power. He is all powerful. His power and his essence are one and the same. And today we have the privilege of seeing that the promise of Jesus was a promise of this mighty God, this self-sufficient, all-powerful God, who's dependent on no one, becoming a child. And, and that's what makes Christmas so remarkable. That's what makes the incarnation, that's a theological word that God incarnated, he became flesh. The uncaused cause became a child. J.I. Packer puts it this way, God became man. You could really just pause there and just wonder at that statement. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. He's trying to get you to realize the weight of this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth. Isn't that awesome? So as you meditate on the manger this season, remember that that child was and is the infinite, almighty, and self-sufficient God simply wrapped in human flesh. A few weeks ago, we began this series in Isaiah 9, and I explained that these events 
took place around 700 years before Jesus came, which is awesome in and of itself. There's these very clear promises of Jesus coming, and he comes and he fulfills them. And at this time, when Isaiah gives this promise, there was political and moral and spiritual decay in Israel among God's people. And a lot of the ones that were still believing God and his promises were starting to wonder, is God going to fulfill his promises? We're walking through Table Talk, and Table Talk right now, after the service, we're going from Genesis to Jesus to show you the whole story of Christmas. And there's all these promises that God makes. And at this point in Israel's history, they're wondering, is he going to fulfill this? Is the one that was promised to crush the head of the serpent, is he going to come? Is God going to rescue us? Will he fulfill his promises And it's in the middle of this hopeless situation that God gives this glorious promise. A promise that we saw in week one, a promise of light from darkness, of joy from sorrow, and of deliverance from bondage. And how will he do this? Through the unlikely means of a child. But last week we began to see that this child is no ordinary child. Look with me at Isaiah 9-6. If you have your Bible open, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now that just means that he's going to take the burden of leadership upon himself and rule as a faithful king. And then he begins to explain what this child is going to be like. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we looked last week at this title of Wonderful Counselor. And what we learn there is that he is qualified to be king and ruler because he is a supernatural wonder-working planner. His plans are infinitely wise because he is infinitely wonderful. That's what we saw last week. This week, we're going to look at the next title in this list, Mighty God. And just like we did last week, we'll do this all throughout. We're going to look at what it means followed by why it matters. And so let's look at first what it means. In the Hebrew, the word mighty just means strong, or powerful, but it specifically refers to showing great power in a position of leadership. All right, and that's in the context of all of this, this coming king who's going to take the burden of leadership upon himself. And along with that, it's often used throughout scripture within the context of warfare. So it carries the idea that this is a mighty warrior, or a strong fighter, or a heroic champion. Okay, and so that's mighty, not just in the sense that he's all-powerful, but in the sense that he's all-powerful and willing to fight and willing to rule as a king who's going to fight for his people. And he also calls him God, mighty God. Now, notice um, in chapter 10, verse 21, Isaiah uses this title to refer to God himself when he says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And so Isaiah doesn't want us to miss this. He's saying, yes, this child is going to be called Mighty God, which means that this coming king is not just mighty, he is also divine. This means that he is not just powerful, but he is all-powerful. Like I said in the introduction, too, his power is a self-sufficient power, not dependent on anything else. Sinclair Ferguson illustrated this with the story of the burning bush. Do you remember that story with Moses? Okay, so Moses comes up to this bush, and it appears to be on fire, But the bush isn't burning. And he he comments this. It's so awesome. He says, the fire that was in the bush, present in the bush, but preserving the bush, was a symbol of God's redemptive power. But notice especially, the fire that was in the bush was not dependent on the bush for its energy to burn. Think about that. A most pure fire, 
A fire that was nothing but fire. A fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but had its energy source in itself. And so there's this fire and it's burning, but it's not using the bush to burn. Fire needs things to burn, if you didn't know that. What this is, is a picture that God doesn't need other things to be powerful. He is self-sufficient. His power is within himself. He is all-powerful. How awesome is that? He's not dependent on us. He's not dependent on on how hard you can believe or or, or anything like that. He is the self-sufficient, all-powerful, mighty God. If Wonderful Counselor highlighted this king's intellect and wisdom for ruling, Mighty God highlights his strength and power for ruling. In other words, he has the ability to accomplish the plans that he makes because he's also the Mighty God. He is infinitely wise as wonderful counselor, and he is infinitely powerful as mighty God. But it gets better, because remember I said that mighty here has to do with mighty in battle. And so when you combine that with the fact this king is divine, you get this takeaway that the Lord is a warrior king who will fight for his people. And that's a theme that we see all throughout scripture. In Exodus 15, right after the Exodus, it's the song of Moses. We actually quoted from this last week. They're, They're singing about God's victory. And they say this in verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's pretty cool. Other translations say the Lord is a warrior, but you get the point. He's a man of war, a warrior king who will fight for his people. Later in Isaiah 42, 13, he says this, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And so he's this warrior, this mighty man, this man of war who shows himself mighty against his enemies. One of my favorite passages about this, though, is Psalm 2. They ask this question. I love this question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. So that's the father and the son saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here's the picture. He's saying, why are the nations all gathering together, all these wise and powerful leaders gathering together thinking, we're going to go against God and we're going to burst his bonds from us. We're going to conquer him. We're going to overcome him. Okay, that's the picture. Now look at how God responds. (laughs) This is great. In verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) He's not even phased. I mean, all the kings of the earth gathered together to try to take down God. And he just laughs at him. He's not, he's not threatened. He's not worried. He's not upset. He's not like, what are we going to do? He's not like, all right, we've got to gather up the angels. Here they come. No, he's just laughing at them. He holds them in derision. Then in verse 5, it says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And later in the, in the chapter, he says, You better kiss the sun, lest he's angry with you. You better get down and you better worship Jesus. Because he's coming again in all of his wrath. Uh, Shai Lin compared this to a kid trying to conquer Spain with a super soaker. That's kind of the picture here. All right? and, and as I was meditating on this passage, um, it brought me uh, back to when Shannon and I first started dating. And I got her permission from this. I didn't get her brother's permission from this. But we are friends, so I think it's okay. Um, but if you see Shannon, you know she's pretty small. And that's kind of like the rest of her family without trying to offend. That's all I'll say. They're, they're pretty small. And so when I first showed up at her church to kind of, you know, I showed my interest in her and wanted to, to date her. And one of her brothers came up to me and he wanted to give me the bro talk, right? He wanted to threaten me. 
But the only thing is, he was really, really small and a lot shorter than me. And so he's looking at me in dead serious. He's not joking. He's like, do you do anything to hurt my sister? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you, guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, Ron? And I'm just like, with everything in my being, trying not to laugh, right? Like, what? Like, what are you going to do to me, man? Like, but I appreciate it. Like, I'm glad he's sticking up for his sister. But that's the idea here. This, all these kings are gathered together and they're like, we're going to take down God. And he's just laughing at them. Like, you aren't going to do a thing. I made you. I spoke you into existence. I'm holding the universe together right now by the word of my power. What are you going to do? He is the mighty God. He's a man of war. It continues. Psalm 24. It says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Joel 2.11 also talks about this. He says, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. So not only is he self-sufficient in all of his power, he's got this exceedingly great army and he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And by the way, every time you see the title Lord of hosts throughout the Bible, that means angel armies. And so it's, it's highlighting the fact that our God is a man of war. He's a warrior. He's a fighter. He's, a, he's one who will defend and fight and protect what he loves. Then this all really climaxes in Revelation 19. This is a terrifying passage, but it's also an epic passage. If you've got this picture of Jesus as this kind of little weakling, um, and he's got the little lamb on his shoulder and the long flowing hair, like you need to read this passage, okay? Revelation chapter 19, when Christ returns, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, if you're here today, right now, he extends mercy and grace to you. But if you will not repent of your sins and believe the gospel, you'll have to face this king when he comes. And so that's why every week I'm just pleading with you. I'm begging with you. Flee from the wrath to come. Take refuge in him so that his wrath won't be poured out on you because it was poured on Jesus Christ at the cross. Amen. But look at this picture when Christ comes. In verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. That's what is coming, a warrior who is going to take what is rightfully his. And by the way, I want to remind you again, grace is offered. A lot of people say, well, Jesus promised he'd come, but it's been 2,000 years, and and, you know, it's clearly he's not going to come. But Peter, Peter already had that coming at him in the first century. And he said, you guys don't understand. A day for the Lord is like a thousand years. It's, it's not like that. The reason he hasn't come, Peter says, is because he's patient and long-suffering. And instead of mocking the fact that he hasn't come, you should bow before him right now. Here's the reality. When Jesus was in the garden, sweating drops of blood, he wasn't afraid of the nails and the whips. I say this all the time. The nails and the whips were excruciating. It was the most horrendous way to die ever. The reason he is so in anguish in his soul is because he knows full well what the wrath of God is. He is God, wrapped in flesh. And he's about to go to the cross 
bear the sins of his people and absorb the wrath of God for us. The same wrath that he's going to measure out himself in Revelation. And that's why as he, as he thinks about going to the cross, he says, God, is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus goes and he takes our sin upon himself and he goes to that cross and he absorbs the wrath of God that we deserve and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken by the Father so that we can be loved and accepted by the Father. And so mercy and grace is available, but know this, he's a warrior king and he's coming again and he's gonna rule with a rod of iron. And so in summary, mighty God refers to the fact that this coming son and king is the Lord, a warrior king who will fight for his people. And this brings us to our second point. I wish I could spend more time there. Um, I can't. I'll, I'll add some things in table talk because I want to say more, but I got to keep going. So why does this matter? I, I think there's a million reasons, just like last week, why this matters. But here's kind of the main, the main thing I want to share with you. If God is a warrior king who fights for his people... This matters immensely because for those of us who have believed the gospel, we have taken shelter in him, refuge in him, we are his people. We are the people he fights for. Paul summarizes why this matters in Romans 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God who laughs when the nations rage against him is for us, if he's on our side, if we're with him, who can be against us? And so there are about a million applications we could make here, but let me just highlight four of them for you um, that are true. If you're a believer today, if you've repented of your sins and believe the gospel, and then this is true for you, that this mighty God, this warrior king first, he will protect you. He will protect you. Your great warrior king has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into his kingdom. And you are now safe and secure in the kingdom of heaven with God himself as your protector and defender. How awesome is that? Remember the old fights in the playground? My dad could beat up your dad. It's certainly true for us who are Christians. He is your protector and defender, and no weapon formed against you will prosper. Because, by the way, if they form a weapon against you and they kill you, they're just ushering you into glory. He has conquered death. He will protect us. Psalm 91 puts it this way. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 46 also highlights this reality when it says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Do you understand what he's saying there? The very worst of the worst of the worst could happen. And we don't need to fear because God is our refuge and our strength and he has promised to protect us. Listen, I don't know what threatens you right now. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's a crisis that no one else knows about. But I do know this, your warrior king will protect you. As the song says, he's your rock and your redeemer, the strong defender of your weary heart. Isn't that awesome? God will protect you if you're his own today. But as comforting as this is, our king does not call us to huddle up in safety until he comes. He calls us to get up, to put on the armor, his very own armor that he gives us to wear, the gospel armor. And, he's, and he calls us to go with him into battle. And so as comforting as it is that he will protect us, we also need to know that he's going to strengthen us as our warrior king. 
This side of glory, the battle will be fierce at times. It will be wearisome. But our mighty God, our warrior king will come. He will strengthen us for battle. He will fight alongside of us. I love Isaiah 41.10. I I think you should all memorize this and use it as a little dagger to fight um, in difficult times. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Picture that scene again of the nations and the kings raging against and he's just laughing. And then picture you, you're with him. <laughs> You've got nothing to fear. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, God may be calling you to something difficult right now. Maybe it's confronting someone you love with some sin in, in order to rescue them from that. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with an unbelieving friend or family member that it's just been weighing, it's been heavy on your heart and you know you need to do it, but you're just, you're terrified to do it. Maybe it's starting a new job or taking some new risk because you feel that's gonna advance God's kingdom in some way. Whatever God is calling you to do, know that he will strengthen you to do it. He will protect you. He will strengthen you, but not only that, he will deliver you. This is encouraging to me because even with his strength, If we're honest, I think all of us have been in times in this life where we feel trapped and we feel overwhelmed. And it's like we know, we know that God is going to protect us. We know that he's going to strengthen us. But right now, there is no way out of the situation, it seems. And in those moments, it's so encouraging to know that our warrior king is going to show up at just the right time. Maybe not when we would want him to show up, (laughs) but he's going to show up and he's going to come and he's going to deliver us. Now, I've got to be careful here because sometimes this deliverance will come through trials and through death itself. But he will ultimately deliver us. Your mighty God will deliver you. And that was the posture of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego as they are facing this fiery furnace, right? They are, are about to get tossed in this furnace and die because they won't worship the image. And what do they say? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> You're just one of those kings that wants to rage against the Lord and his anointed one. And so we, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you toss us into this furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. So they say he's able to do it, but they don't say he necessarily will. <laughs> the end of the verse, he says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And so even if he throws us in the furnace, and we burn to death. He will deliver us out of your hand. I love how the song puts it that I mentioned earlier. God is your rock and your redeemer, the strong defender of your weary heart. But he continues, your sword to fight the cruel deceiver, your shield against his hateful darts, your song when enemies surround you, your hope when tides of sorrow rise, your joy when trials are abounding, his faithfulness is your refuge in the night. God will protect us, God will strengthen us, and God will deliver us. But I think my favorite truth, and the final truth I'll highlight, is the one I highlighted all throughout this, that he will fight for you. I mean, how awesome is it that God will fight for us? This is seen all throughout the scriptures, and as I was studying it, and I was cross-referencing it, I realized that every leader in every stage of Israel's history used this to encourage God's people in difficult times. I want to show you this really quick. Try not to zone out. Okay, I'm going to give you a lot here, but it's just so cool. During the Exodus, we already saw this, but during the Exodus, Moses told God's people, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Some of you know that one. That's like the famous one. Then from there, later, they're preparing to take the land. And he says, you shall not fear them. Why? 
for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Then after the conquest of the land, Joshua takes the role. He's the new leader. And he's looking back and he reminds the people, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. Why? For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Fast forward to the time of the kings. King Hezekiah. It's actually after um, the time in our passage in Isaiah 9. The Assyrian army is breathing down their necks. They are terrified. They are trembling. They don't know what to do. The people are terrified. And Hezekiah goes to the people and he says this in 2 Chronicles 32. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all of this horde that is with them. For there are more with us than with them. Not by my count, Hezekiah. Well, he's the God of angel armies. There are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And then they do end up going into exile later on in the story. And they return to the land. And Nehemiah is there. You know the story. He's building the walls. He's helping them. And again, they got these threats. They've got this, this difficulty, this hard situation that they're in. And he turns to them. And in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 20, he says this, Our God will fight for us. And so here's what's cool. At the exodus and the conquest during the kings and even after exile, God's people are encouraged with this reality. The Lord will fight for his people. Now, all of this comes to a climax in Jesus Christ, and it also answers a very, very important question for us. How do we know this to be true? Because sometimes, if you're honest, it feels like he didn't fight for you in this situation. It feels like he's not fighting for me how I want him to do in this situation. So how, how do I know that he's actually fighting for me? How do we know that this is true? What, what promise can you give me besides just all these, these, these messages throughout the Bible? What, what else is there? What can I look to to know that he's going to actually protect me, that he's going to actually deliver me, that he's going to actually fight for me? Well, here's why we know this to be true. Because he proved it to be true at the cross. When the son who was given, the child who was born, the mighty warrior king went to battle against the greatest foe in history, the biggest battle you would ever have to face, he went to battle on your behalf. He fought against that great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He went to battle against Satan who had the power of sin and death, your greatest enemies in this life and the life to come. It took place outside of Jerusalem. It was the fiercest battle in history. And when the dust settled, it looked as if Satan, sin, and death had won. This warrior king, this author of life, was dead with his lifeless body hanging from the cross. But you know how the story ends. It turns out this is only a heel wound. And through death, the bloody heel crushed the head of the serpent just as it was promised in Genesis 3.15. Three days later, our mighty God rose from the grave and death was swallowed up in victory. And through death, our warrior king destroyed the one who had the power of death. He fought the greatest battle we could ever face and he conquered, delivering us from the fearful slavery of sin and death. And so when you question his love for you, his goodness for you, his willingness to go to battle for you, you look at the cross and you see that warrior king taking the greatest battle humanity could ever face and conquering sin, death, hell, and Satan on your behalf if you're his own. He proved he will fight for you when he fought for you at the cross. 
And that's why Paul in Romans 8 says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, later on he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so how do we know he'll fight for us? We look to the cross. We look to the cross. As we close this morning, this is what I want to leave you with. Your mighty God is fighting for you. He's fighting right now. I've talked about this before, but you just wonder, when you look at scripture, you know spiritual warfare, it's all the time. You just wonder if we could just, if he could open our eyes right now to see what's going on and see the battles he's fighting for you right now, it will blow our minds. Sometimes we're so focused on physical that we miss the main thing. He's fighting for your soul. And he has promised to get you home, to protect you, to get you to glory. Your mighty God is fighting for you. He will protect you. He will strengthen you. He will deliver you. He will fight for you. Psalm 91 puts it this way. God says this. So to take this as a promise from God to us. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. This promise was fulfilled in Jesus when, when he when he enabled Jesus to overcome death and now we're united to Christ and what's true of Christ is true of us. And so he promises, I will protect you. When you call, I'll answer you. I'll be with you in trouble. I'll rescue you. I'll honor you. I will show you my salvation. We sang earlier, the battle belongs to the Lord. I want to close by reading some of those lyrics. He says this, when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I'm safe with you. The God of angel armies, the man of war, the warrior king who's fighting for me. Almighty fortress, you go before us, and nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadow, you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. So when we fight, we fight on our knees with our hands lifted high. Why? Because the battle belongs to him. Amen. The battle is the Lord's. And every fear, we can lay at his feet and we can sing through the night because the battle belongs to the Lord. Your wonderful counselor is working his plan and your mighty God is fighting your battles. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Your mighty God is fighting for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not dependent on us for anything. That you are almighty, all-powerful self-sufficient, self-sustaining, infinite, eternal. And you have sent Jesus as our warrior king to fight for us. 
God, I just pray that whatever battles we're in right now, whatever battles we face tomorrow or tonight or the next day, we'd remember this truth. That our warrior king, our mighty God, is fighting for us. Lord, I pray that you would just use this truth, press it deep into our hearts to encourage us during this time of prayer. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.